Good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson and I'm the lead pastor here. We are so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Um, It's almost 11 o'clock. There's a big soccer match that's about to come on. Perhaps you know about it. You're not allowed to watch it during the service. We all have it DVR'd. We'll watch it this afternoon. But we are. We're so thankful for you to be here. Let's pray as we open up God's word together. Father, we are thankful that we get to come to church and we get to come and we get to worship you. And God, we are thankful that the songs that we've been singing this morning aren't just mere words. But God, that the words that we've been singing this morning are truth, that you are king, that your kingdom has come and it is still coming, that you are in complete control of everything. And God, we worship you this morning. We thank you and we praise your name forever and ever and ever because you are worthy the lion and the lamb. And God, I pray that as we have just worshiped with song and with communion, God, that we would just continue to worship you through the teaching, the hearing, the applying of your word. God, I pray that you would help us to understand our text, that your spirit would move in our lives, that you would convict that you would encourage, that you would empower us to see ourselves in the text and to be convicted enough not just to understand, but to do something, to live another way. And I pray that for myself. And so, God, we give you our time this morning. Pray that we would be focused on you. And it's all because of you that we can pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. This summer, we've been walking through what I'm calling the kingdom parables, where Jesus gets into this little cove in Matthew 13, these crowds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, and Jesus shares these little compelling, confusing parables, each of them describing what he calls the kingdom of heaven. And it's just, it's really interesting that Jesus would take this opportunity to share these little stories that make no sense to half the crowd, that are short. And he would describe them as, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Last week, we asked the question, why is Jesus emphasizing the kingdom of heaven so much. Why is this what he's talking about? What an opportunity to share the gospel. What an opportunity to talk about discipleship. But Jesus focuses only on the kingdom. And it's because he knew the danger of unmet expectations. That the people that were listening to Jesus in that cove in Matthew 13 were expecting for a king to come to overthrow Rome. Like, that's what they were excited about. 
We can't wait for the king to come and establish a physical kingdom, overthrow Rome. And this is what the prophecy of the Old Testament was dominated by. A stone was coming, and this stone was going to dominate and destroy the world empires. And so these Jewish people are listening to Jesus saying, it has to be now. I mean, look at the oppression that we're facing. Our buildings are being burned down. We're being robbed. We're being killed. It has to be now that the prophecy of the Old Testament is finally coming to fulfillment. And so because Jesus knows this is what they're expecting, this is what they're wanting, this is what they're thinking about, he's, Jesus realizes, I have to set things straight. I have to make this very clear. My kingdom is coming in that way. Like you are having the right expectation, but it's not happening right now. My, it is not coming in that way right now. My kingdom has come, though. That's why in Mark, the first thing that Jesus says is the kingdom of God is at hand. My kingdom is here, but it's not come in the way that you're thinking. The way that my kingdom has come today is that I have come to rule and to reign and to direct your life, to heal you spiritually, and to start my kingdom internally with the individual. And this is how it starts. This is how the kingdom of God starts. It starts with the person, and it's going to come in stages, and eventually the songs that we've, we've been singing about, he is going to come back, and the kingdom will be established. But right now, it's he has come as Lord and king of your life, that we're being ruled and dominated by all these other things, but he's come to dominate our lives now. And so last week, he, we looked at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, as if Jesus was just to say, um, it's not going to be pretty waiting for that kingdom to come. Like there will be weeds, which he described were people that look like they're following Jesus, but they aren't following Jesus. And he's telling the, the disciples, he says, your life in between the kingdom that has come spiritually for you individually and the kingdom that will come is going to be a mixture of all sorts of people. And it's as if Jesus was saying, be patient, be patient, just, just wait, the reaper is coming, and at the, the end, the reaper will come, but right now, you're living in between times, expect for evil things to happen, expect for bad things to happen, because you're intermingled with the weeds, and we don't even know who is wheat, and we can't even tell who is a weed, but just be patient, be patient. And so for us, we, we really stress last week this in-between life that we live. We get glimpses of the kingdom now. When Jesus comes and changes someone's life, we get a glimpse of the kingdom. That he's ruling and reigning in someone's life. But at the same time, we have a really clear picture of the kingdom that's not yet. Because of the evil and the pain and the suffering and the hurt. And so, like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, we are looking at the world with a mirror and we can see dimly. Like we can make out the kingdom a little bit, like we can see like the outline of it, but it's certainly not clear. I was listening to a pastor this week talk about this 
in-between time. And he was describing how when he went to seminary in Houston, how he realized that human trafficking was not just something that happened over there or over there or overseas. And this realization for this pastor, when he realized that Houston, Houston, Texas, right down the block from where he was studying was a hub for this human sex trafficking. And he, he said him and a group of friends decided to do something. I mean, they, they did not know this, so they decided to do something. And so they joined the task force with the Houston Police Department. Every other Saturday, they would go to these six brothels right down the road from where they studied. And they would, the men would stay in the car, and when the, the guys would leave these houses, the girls would go up and knock on the door, seeking to get to know the young ladies that stayed and lived there to share a conversation, have a conversation, to, to be in relationship, to give hope, and just to listen to them. And so he talked about how they continued to do this every other Saturday. And then it was Christmas. And he described how we thought it would be a good idea, maybe it wasn't a good idea, on Christmas Eve to go and to sing Christmas carols at these brothels. And he described a moment, and it just it, it hit me listening to the words that these, this group sang as they sang, O holy night, truly he taught us to love one another. For his law, his love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression will cease. And he said, they described how these, these young ladies who w- couldn't open the door, but they started to ask questions the next couple of weeks. And he just just described this whole scene, this whole experience as this, we're seeing God work in the lives of these young ladies. Like these young ladies are being freed and are being saved. But at the same time, this is not right. This is not how it should be. And he described it as this in-between glimpse of the kingdom. For the parables this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 13, 36. We'll start at 36 and then we'll jump down to 44. Jesus shifts gears. Let's read the parables and then we'll take a deeper look. We'll start with verse 36 and then we'll jump down. It says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Okay, jumping down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the sea search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So that first verse that we read, Jesus is saying, the disciples kind of leaned in to learn more. They went inside, the crowd left. He just shared four parables on the kingdom. The crowd was like, no, thank you. Like, that's not really what we're looking for here. Jesus goes inside with the disciples, and he says, let me tell you, two more very short parables about my kingdom. 
the kingdom of heaven. And it's almost as Jesus is saying to the disciples, I want to describe to you how you should respond the so what of the kingdom being here now. Yes, the kingdom is not yet. Like it, 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 there is evil and there is sorrow and there is pain. But now Jesus is like, let me tell you how you should live and how you should respond to knowing that the kingdom is here now. And so he tells these short little parables, parables that would have not been hard for them to imagine. Not in this day. A man randomly stumbles on some treasure. Now, we don't know what he was doing in the field. Maybe he was working. Maybe he was walking home. Maybe he was mowing the lawn. I'm not sure. He uncovers a priceless treasure. Wouldn't that be nice? Money, you know, just you're mowing the lawn. You bump into something. You dig up a hole and you find a treasure that is priceless. That would be really nice. I was um, watching a, a riveting show on PBS called The Antique Road Show. Perhaps this is interesting to share with you guys this morning. Is, have you seen this show, The Antique Road? It, you don't have to admit it. It's okay. I was watching this show, and I was watching this man who brought in a blanket. Okay, the man, they showed a little bit of the backstory of this man. He brings in this blanket. He, he lived with his grandparents in Tucson, Arizona. And this blanket, he said, I grew up with this blanket draping over this dresser. And then when my grandparents died, I put it on my kid's bed. And I would use it. My kids would use it. I have used it. And he said, you know what? I think there's something unique about this blanket. So he brings in this blanket thinking he might get a little bit of something and to watch the response of the guy that is looking at all the items brought in. This guy got giddy. He got excited and he said this, on a really bad day, this Navajo textile, so not even a blanket, it's a textile, I guess, $350,000. On a good day, a half a million dollars. A blanket, a blanket that has just been sitting on his bed for all these years. He takes it in and all of a sudden he has a half a million dollars. This man in the parable, we're not sure what he was doing, but this would have been common. There weren't banks. You didn't give your most treasured possessions to a bank or to a safe box. Instead, what you would do is you would dig a hole and you would hide it in a hole. Now, the problem with that, and you might be thinking it already, like, what if I forgot? Like, I'm hiding this here. Like, what if I forgot I hid it there? Or if there was a war and you lost your land or you passed away. So many different scenarios in this culture where you could lose your land just like that. And it happened all the time. And so this man is walking home. He finds this treasure in this field. It's really interesting what he does though. Right? He digs up the treasure. And then what does he do? He hides it back. He doesn't go and tell the owner of the land, I found a treasure in your land. He says, ooh, look at that. That's valuable. 
let me hide it. Let me cover it up and let me go and offer to buy this land. And so he does. He gladly with joy, the text says, liquidates and sells everything he has to get this piece of land. Because he knows that on that land, there is treasure that is priceless, that is infinitely more valuable than everything he sold. And then the second peril is similar, but with some differences. The first man wasn't looking for anything. He wasn't on the search for anything. He uncovers this treasure. The second one, there is a merchant, a pearl merchant, who buys and sells pearls, who looks for pearls, who barters for them, and then he sells them. This man was probably wealthy. Pearls in this culture were similar to how diamonds are today. There could be that major value in one pearl. The, the history of, as I was reading all this information about pearls, was there were some pearls that were worth billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And so you have this merchant. He knows what he's looking for. And he finally stumbles upon the one pearl that is, he has been searching for his entire life. And he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't hesitate. I will sell everything I have, my business, my pearls, everything I own, come and get it because I am buying the one pearl that the owner of the pearl doesn't know what it is. Again, the owner of the, the, owner of the valuable pearl must not have known, must not have known what he had in his possession. What is Jesus trying to tell us? What is he trying to tell the disciples here in this passage? Just a couple of kind of thoughts that I think connect both of the parables together. I think both men discovered that there is something valuable that other people don't see. Both men find something of value that the other people don't see. Both men realize that there is no halfway to get these things. There is no halfway. The only option to get, these, to get the field and to get the pearl is to sell everything. But they both realize the supreme value of what they're getting. Supreme value. Like, yes, we are selling everything we own, but what we get back is supremely more valuable than anything that we have. What is Jesus teaching us about the kingdom? What is he teaching us? What is he telling the disciples? I think he's saying, my kingdom is the pearl. My kingdom is the treasure. The kingdom that is here now is the most valuable thing you could ever imagine. And he's telling the disciples this because he wants them to value what he is doing in their lives spiritually like it is a priceless treasure. It's like when we talked in Ephesians, when we started the book in Ephesians in chapter 1, where Paul is praying through the blessings of what it means to be in the kingdom, in Christ, that we were chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and enlightened. We were sealed. Like this is the value of the kingdom, that you were not those things, that you were dead and deceived and doomed. And because of what Christ has done, he has changed your destiny. You were lost and he found you. 
This is the value of the kingdom that he has altered and changed your eternal trajectory. This is infinitely more valuable than anything you can imagine. That in Christ, in the kingdom, you are accepted. That you are given his name. You are made a son and daughter of the king. You are given purpose. You're given security. You're given a future. This is the kingdom. This is, I think sometimes we, we devalue it or we don't cherish it like it is. The fact that this is what it means to be in the kingdom. This is what Christ has done for us. And this passage is telling us that it is a priceless treasure that is worth everything. And it's not just that this kingdom now that is so valuable, but it's the kingdom that we've been singing about. The kingdom that is coming is so valuable. The fact that there, this inheritance will be fully given to you. The no mores, the no more sickness, and the no more pain, the no more racism and prejudice and all the things that we experience, like no more in the kingdom that is still to finish and to come fully. And he's saying, this is what is so valuable. Stop devaluing the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. The value of the kingdom is that our king has things in store for us, his sons and daughters, that we can't imagine. And the only response that makes sense is like the response of the men in the parable. When we value the kingdom and what he has come, what he has done for us, and what he will do for us, the only response that makes sense is the same type of response from those in the parable. Total commitment, total surrender, total joy, total worship. And he's saying, open your eyes to the value of what I've done for you. Respond in light of the value. Total commitment. I will go, do, be, wherever, whatever you have for me. Total commitment saying, I will willingly do. I will willingly go. I will willingly be whatever you have because you are worthy. Look at there's a passage on the screen that talks about this. Luke 9, 57 says, As they were going down the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. Like, I'll do whatever, Jesus. But Jesus knew that he was not totally committed. And he says, well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, Are you totally committed? There are no guarantees when you follow me. Like the animals have a better place to sleep than you might have when you follow me. Am I worth it? How committed are you? Like you may not have a bed to sleep on, he says to the man. Like you say, I'll go wherever. Well, what if that means you sleep on the ground? Commitment says it doesn't matter. The place, the accommodations, 
it doesn't matter. I did a wedding a, a couple weeks ago, and, and the couple, uh, the wife is in the military. And she knew that as, after they got married, it was very likely for her to be deployed for one year. And that the husband would not be able to come with her because of where she was going. Commitment says, I'm excited to marry you, and, and the location makes no difference. No difference. If he were to say, well, I'm excited to marry you, but since you might get the point, I'm actually rethinking this whole thing. I know it's just a year, but I don't want to do that. Like, that's not commitment to her. Commitment says, it doesn't matter where or what or the details, I'm committed to you. I will do whatever you call me to do. That's a statement I hear. I will do whatever you call me to do. Often, when we think of calling, this is a little bit of an aside. When we say, I'm called, I'm called to go here, and I'm called to do this, and I'm called to go on this trip, or to move to this place, or called to start this job, or called, we use this language often. Calling. God's called me. He picked up the phone, and he called me. I'm feeling led to do this, to go to this place. But what's interesting about calling, maybe this is just a pet peeve, what's interesting about this this idea of calling is that the way the Bible uses the idea of calling is much different than how we use the idea of calling. Like Jesus doesn't pick up a phone and call us to places. When he calls us in the Bible, the Bible talks about calling us into salvation. He calls us, In Acts 2.21, he says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling deals with salvation. But then the second most predominant usage or understanding of calling in the New Testament is God is calling us to holiness. He's calling us to be more like Christ. There's so many passages like this. Paul says, God who saved us, who called us to a holy living. God's not called us for impurity. You were called to freedom. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner. Live holy lives because that's how you've been called. So when we say, I'm committed to do whatever, wherever God has called me, it's much less about a place. It's much more about the person that you are. And here's what I'm saying. When we realize the treasure of the kingdom, of Christ, all I'm saying is we will commit to him no matter what. It it may not be something you like. There are times when you read God's word and you don't like what you're reading. I remember many years ago studying a passage in the Psalms. And I remember reading this passage about David making a commitment not to put anything vile before his eyes. Okay, and I remember the Holy Spirit hitting me, like overcoming me with conviction that a show that I really like to watch should not be something I watched. The Office, I'll just share what show it was. I remember just thinking as I'm reading this passage, I had to share. If I didn't share, you'd ask. And I just remember in this, and it doesn't happen all the time. I didn't open up my Bible that morning thinking, 
I want to be convicted. But I remember reading this passage, and it was like the show that I had just watched was not computing with what I was reading. And I'm not saying this is for everyone. I'm not. I'm just saying for me in this moment, I knew that this was not coming together, that there was a disconnect. Here's what commitment says. Commitment says, I don't like that because I I like the show. I don't like it. But because this is what my king is telling me to do, I will do it. I will do it. And it doesn't matter if it's inconvenient. It doesn't matter if it's hard or not something I want. I will do what my king tells me to do. And so for you, it may be you don't like giving money. Maybe you don't like what, the, what God's word says about sexuality and marriage. Maybe you don't like what God's word says about submitting to authorities or praying for your enemies. But, and this sounds much harsher. I don't mean to sound too harsh, but it doesn't matter what you think. When we commit to the king that's given us all these things, we're saying, I'm committed. It's not about me liking it. I'm committed to you and to your word and what you've told me. And this is the picture of the men in the parables who say, I'm committed to the treasure even if it costs me something. Not only is it, not only is it saying we're totally committed, we're totally committed to this king, but we will totally surrender. I will give up whatever needs to be given up in order to be faithful. I will surrender anything that I need to surrender if that allows me to be faithful to the king. This is all about value. There's a difference between value and worth. If you're selling something like a desk or a table, what is this worth? What will somebody buy this for? What is a reasonable amount of money that someone would pay to get this item? Value is more, less, is more subjective than that. It's how do I feel about this item? It is in the eye of the beholder, the person with the item, to assign what something is valued based on past experience, based on how you feel about it. I have a, a wooden cross. I forgot to bring it up here. Um, that my mother gave to me when I was saved, when I was in middle school. And she didn't know what she was giving me. But this is a little piece of wood that's probably not worth a dollar. I value this. I wouldn't sell this for $10,000. Well, I might sell it for (laughs) $10,000. That hurts the illustration. I wouldn't sell this for something. But I, I value this. It's not worth anything, but I value it because of the history that's with it. And so when I'm talking about surrender, I'm saying we would surrender things that we don't think are as valuable as what we are getting in return. I, I was thinking, trying to think of an illustration. This is what I came up with. I would give up my dog, who I love, my dog Buster, for my kids, I value my kids more than my dog. That's weird, though, that I would have to do that. I value my kids much more than my my dog. And here's what he's saying. The kingdom is more valuable than anything 
you can imagine. It's more valuable than your life. It is so precious. It changes us. And the value should be exponentially more than anything we can touch or put our hands on here. And martyrs, I was reading about martyrs. Martyrs understood this. Martyrs understood how to evaluate things. I was reading about the the church in the 1500s in England. How when Queen Mary takes the throne, she makes a decision to go away from the Protestant church where it was headed and go back to the Catholic church. And as she took this throne, followed by King Henry VIII, they made these drastic measures to go away from Protestant evangelical faith back to the Catholic faith. And what they did was awful. There were two men, bishops, who were major players in this shift to biblical faith. And she put them on trial. Their names were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. And as she starts to question these men who, but because of the king at the time, were pursuing this faith, but she asked them these questions. Do you believe the Pope was the heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church? And they said, no. The church was not built on any more man, but on the truth that Peter confessed that Christ was the Son of God. I cannot honor the Pope since the Pope in Rome is seeking its own glory, not the glory of God. She pounds them with these questions and they said, we don't care how you want us to answer these questions. And then finally they were burned at a stake. And and as they're talking to each other, Latimer says to Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace. In England, as I trust, shall never be put out. This is the ability, this is the, you are on your deathbed. But you value the kingdom that you are about to walk into more than your actual life. The famous quote from Jim Elliot and the other missionaries. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's saying, let's try to value everything we have. There is more value in living for the king than anything else. Surrender. For whatever I've gained, I count it as loss, Paul says. We surrender. The last two, we'll wrap up with these. The king deserves our commitment. The king deserves our surrender. But both of these, he deserves to be done in total joy. My two favorite words in this passage. In joy. In joy. He sells everything he has to get the treasure. What about the things that he loved, the things that he cherished? Like, how could he sell his most precious things in joy? Well, it's only, the only way that could be possible is if the value of what he was getting was exponentially more than anything he could fathom. Think about it. If he was just getting double the value, I'll sell all my things. I'm going to get this treasure. It's twice as much as everything. Like, that makes sense on paper. That makes some sense on paper. But the value of the things that he loved, it doesn't make sense. 
he was getting something infinitely more valuable than anything he had. This is joy, realizing the value of the words that used to stand over here, of who we are in Christ. Joy of what it means that we were slaves, we were orphans, that we were lost, that we were hopeless, that we were doomed until our king came to get us. Our king came to redeem us. And the value far outweighs anything else we can think or imagine. And joy says, I will sacrifice and commit, surrender, enjoy, because I know who I am in the kingdom. And all of this is just worship. My favorite quote for what worship is, says this, worship is all, from John MacArthur, worship is all that we are, reacting rightly to all that he is. All that we are, reacting rightly to who he is. This is, what, this is the whole point of the parable, saying, you are worthy of our worship. Like, we are responding by singing a song to you because of who you are and the value of what you've done for us. And so, yes, we will commit to you, we will surrender to you, we will be excited, we'll do it in joy, but it all comes down to, all of this is, is worship, because as BJ shared in his little devotion, before we sang the song is, Jesus is worthy. Like, he is the worthy one. He will be the worthy one when he cracks open the seals for judgment. But he is worthy this very moment. Because the kingdom isn't just a future event. The kingdom is now in what he's done for us. And it is worthy for us to completely commit, to completely surrender, to worship him, and to do it all with joy. And it is my prayer for us, for me, and for us, is that we would see the king as the value that he is. That we would evaluate it. And the value that we would put on what he's done for us spiritually would be like the men who discovered the treasure. Because we can evaluate what Christ has done for us. We've heard it all of our lives. We've been around it. We know it. You know, it just becomes old hat. And this parable is saying, don't forget the treasure. Don't forget the pearl. Don't forget the value of what he's done. And then just respond to what it is like, that this is, this is invaluable treasure. For us, let's respond in commitment. Let's respond in surrender with joy and in worship. Let's pray. Father, help us, help me, open my eyes, open my heart to see the value of what you've done for me. May it not be that we become so used to this message. That this, the message that you came and you saved us. May we not get so used to it that it becomes something of lesser value. But God, I pray that we would be like the men in the parable who see the treasure, see the value, and we respond because of it. So help us, God, to first see the value. Help us then to respond. 
committing to you, surrendering to you, and joining in worship. God, we're thankful. God, we come and we give you this last song, and we worship you because you are worthy. Help us as we sing to think about your value and your worth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.